Uh, here again, the word of the living God from uh, the gospel according to Matthew, Matthew 24, verses 29 uh, to 35. So I invite your hearing uh, in faith, again, uh, the living word. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Praise be to God for his word to us. And one of the clear references that the church has left us speaks to uh, the coming of Christ. The Apostle Paul, pardon me, the uh, Apostles' Creed reads of Jesus that he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. In the manner that he ascended, in like manner he will come again. The Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed, again, another expression of, of uh, the truth of the church. On the third day, Jesus rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated to the right hand of the Father. And He shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Let there be no doubt this is what the church believes. It's now repaired to the scriptures, the clarity of the proclamation of the living word of God. Our Lord in Matthew chapter 24, certainly verse 29, is answering, beginning to answer the second question of the third verse of that chapter. What will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? This means, of course, that he has finished answering the first question. What are the signs that speak to the coming of the destruction of the temple? Now repairs to the greatest event of all time. The coming of Christ. Of course, you and I implicitly know that he does not tell us when. What he does deliver is the certainty of the reality that he will come again in the same manner that he ascended, in power and glory. One of the things that uh, we will learn uh, in this chapter, but I think and trust it will become all the clearer in the 25th chapter, that again is part of the Olivet Discourse, is the necessary application that he's coming. If you will, the so what? Because that's really the important aspect of the prophetic reality that's going to come again. Namely, the right ethical response. Because apart from that, we are all in a serious way. And I trust that what will become clear is that the necessary ethical response to the coming of Christ is persevering in the faith. Uh, the text in my mind, it begins in verse 29, uh, speaks to a post-tribulational coming of Christ. Uh, I'm not unaware that that is a very unpopular statement uh, 
in American Christianity today. From my perspective, somewhat anecdotal to be sure, most Christians in America, certainly Oklahoma City, hold to a pre-tribulational coming in the sense that the church will not go through tribulation. I think this text is clear that the coming of Christ, the second coming, is post-tribulation. And so the text begins, but immediately after the tribulation of those days. It's quite clear that the apostolic company is going to go through tribulation. What's the reference here? Again, the text is a reference to the tribulation described in verses 4 to 28. For example, verse 9, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. If you look at verse 22, And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days shall be cut short. Verse 24, I think is an excellent text, a way to understand the tribulation that breaks upon the American church. Tribulation takes many forms, but certainly this is formative of tribulation in the American church. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Of course, it's not possible to deceive the elect, but that begs the question, who are the elect? Of course, verses 4 to 28 refer to the coming of Christ in 70 AD and the destruction of the temple, but that event in and of itself is typological of the tribulation all of us face as Christians. As I've suggested in the American culture, I think much of our tribulation is simply the dilution of the truth, the steady dilution of the truth, so that the church is confused and uh, comes under the uh, sway and influence of false prophets. So that false prophets' deception and lawlessness are really normative in the American church. I trust they're not normative in Grace Bible Church. Tribulation is the world's attempt to destroy us spiritually, and if it cannot destroy us spiritually, it will attempt to destroy us physically. So I think that when you read of uh, the physical persecution of the church in the Middle East, you are reading a dramatic and uh, powerful attempts on behalf of the world to destroy the church in those regions physically. Now, regardless of whether it's spiritual or physical, our response to the reality and the certainty of the coming of Christ is to hold on. Uh, if you would, again, look at Matthew 24, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end, it is he who shall be saved. Of course, that's not the first time we've grappled with that text. Let's turn back to chapter 10, verse 22. And you will be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. It's obviously in my own mind that our Lord is inaugurating the end time tribulation. And that's why I'm committed to the fact that the coming of Christ is post-tribulation. Uh, that the ethical demand on this greatest of all events that is yet future is to hold on to the end. It's not that perseverance is salvific, but it's evidence of true faith. All of your life, you will see people come in and out of the faith. You will see people come into the faith and then over time simply fall away. And sometimes they will just simply out and out reject it. These verses speak to that. Under the great specter coming of Christ to judge the living and the dead. So that the ethical element in this inter-advent period is uh, persevering as an evidence of true faith. 
Well, the second coming of Christ, it's post-tribulational. It involves retribution on the enemy of the church who causes tribulation to be experienced by the church, whether spiritual or physical. Verses 29 to 31. When the inner Advent period runs its course in the sovereignty of God, Christ will come. Again, Matthew 24. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Again, our Lord, in answering the questions of the apostles, is now returning or repairing if you will, to their second question. What are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? This is the answer. It's not the when, of course, simply the certainty of the decisive reality that he will come. But the text is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 13, uh, verse 10. Trust you have your Old Testament, you do. The prophet Isaiah, the 13th chapter, our Lord is alluding to that in his answer to the apostolic question. For the stars of heaven and their constellation will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. And thus I will punish the world for its evil. For the stars of heaven and their constellation again will not flash forth their light. If you look at the ninth verse, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation. And he will exterminate sinners from it. And then the prophet repairs to these great cosmic signs as a reminder of the shaking of the created order, the coming of God in judgment. The context is the coming of God in the nation of Babylon to wreak havoc on the professing nation for their apostasy and nominalism. If you will, their idolatry. He's going to come in judgment and the armies of Babylon are going to affect that judgment. It was terrifying judgment in the death and destruction that ensued and the captivity of the nation back into a foreign land. Again, you must understand the gravity of that upon the professing nation. Be like a foreign army invading the United States and tearing down the capital. Destroying the great markers of our identity as Americans. The Constitution, the Bill of Rights, great statues of great American heroes and presidents, and then taking us away into captivity. We would think, whore, that... That cannot happen. That's what Israel thought, but it did happen. He came in judgment, utter destruction, the armies of Babylon. The greater fulfillment, of course, as our Lord alludes to that text in Matthew 24, is in the second coming. In other words, the armies of Babylon was nothing. The intensity of the fulfillment in the second coming will be exponential. And the cosmic signs indicate the intensity of the judgment, the upheaval and shaking of the created order, and the coming of the Son of Man. Great shaking, and then the Son of Man will appear. To effect retribution upon the enemies of God. Uh, Son of Man, as you know, and are going through the, the book of uh, Matthew's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7. Verses 13 and 14. Uh, there I believe that Jesus is inaugurating the end time tribulation and the text describes uh, his reward for his perseverance. Again, if you look at the text, there's a vision of the Son of Man being rewarded. But in the interpretive section, you read of the persecution of his people. And, and we read the interpretive section back into the vision section to understand 
what's going on as to why Christ, who is the Son of Man, is being rewarded by heaven. And we know, again, from the interpretive sections, because he was persecuted, but he went the distance, went to the cross, and was rewarded by God and set down at the right hand of God the Father. But in that sense, he's inaugurated the end-time tribulation. I think that's one of the great uh, themes of the Gospel of Matthew. And the reality of uh, the interpretive section of the book is that all of the enemies who have persecuted the people of God will be decisively destroyed. It's a great reminder uh, to the church that justice will come in the Son of Man. Again, if you uh, have your Old Testament, Daniel uh, chapter 7 speaks to just that. In verses 26 and 27, but the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. It's a warning to those who persecute God's people. that Justice will come. I was reminded of this uh, this past week. I, I took my youngest son to the movie. Uh, the title of the movie was Anthropoid, I think. It's about, uh, in a quick measure, the suffering of people under uh, Nazi Germany, Czechoslovakia in particular. It's very difficult to understand how incredibly evil uh, that government was, but it just simply destroyed everything that got in the way. It's a scene in a Catholic church, and the priest saying, the reason I hold on is knowing that there will be justice, and there will be justice. Now, there was, of course, the Allied armies, May 1945 but it will be much worse in the second coming for any who have messed with the people of God. It's our reminder from the book of Daniel that Christ is our corporate head and what he does we are to do. And what did Christ do from Daniel 7? He persevered, he went the distance, he went to the cross. All along the way, the teaching order of the nation of Israel attempted to seduce him, to get him to turn away. The forces of darkness attempted to tempt him, to get him to leave off the calling of God. He refused them all. He went the distance. He went to the cross. He was rewarded. What he does, we are to do. So that while enthroned in heaven after the resurrection, the physical reality is now revealed in the second coming, the appearance of the Son of Man, the greatest of all signs of the coming of the end of the age, when he brings his kingdom to the earth, and he will appear and come in great power and glory. One of the most important applications, the ethical demands of that fact and that certainty is meant to purify us in persevering. It's difficult to persevere. It's difficult to go the distance. We see that and will see it in our Lord's life. He goes into the garden and prays in incredible intensity. Why? Because of the sheer difficulty of going the distance. But you and I are caught in the vagaries of that. Suffering. Going the distance. Trusting God to the end. So the reminder of the certainty of the second coming is to purify our faith, to hold on to the end. It's our reminder that he won, and we will win in him by persevering. Perseverance, of course, is the opposite of compromise. The visible coming of judgment will catch all who have played him false. Again, that lesson will play out as we continue to go through the Olivet Discourse. It will come, I think, in the sharpest relief when we look at uh, the parable of the ten bridesmaids. Uh, 
because many in the church are playing Christ false and they will not escape. Again, that awaits Matthew 25. Ironically, the second coming will involve recompense on the visible people of God illustrated by the nation of Israel. It's no time to go back to Daniel chapter 9, but Jesus uh, says that uh, he will be crucified, the nation will reject him, and he will dispatch Roman legions to destroy the temple in punishment. It's meant to purify our faith. You cannot deal lightly with Christ. I know much of our culture says, well, I don't want to know anything about the Scriptures and God won't hold me responsible. He will hold you responsible regardless. One of the great reasons to go to church is submit your life to the teaching ministry of the Word of God to study the Scriptures. That you might prove yourself a workman that needs not to be ashamed. It's the importance of the Word of God. The reality that God will bring all things into judgment. So there's going to be recompense upon the visible people of God who played him false. And that is captured initially for us in a reference, ironically, to the nation of Israel. You look at the last part of verse 30. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds and sky with power and great glory. It's a difficult text because uh, it's an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. You know, by the way, our Lord is uh, giving the Olivet Discourse, much of which is so constituted by the Old Testament. As a reminder to us, it's one of the reasons we should study to show ourselves approved to God. The study of the Scripture. Zechariah chapter 12 and verses 9 and 10. It will come about on that day that I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication, so they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a firstborn. The context, of course, of Zechariah 12, verses 9 and 10 is the defeat of the end-time enemies of Israel. But what's ironic about our Lord's allusion to this text in Matthew 24 is that he makes a change from Israel to all of the tribes of the earth. Notice again Matthew 24.30. It's quite clear in Zechariah 12. It's a reference to Israel, but Jesus changes the text to read, then all of the tribes of the earth. So that he shifts from the nation who played him false to the many, the nations. From a particular nation to the universal nations, all the tribes of the earth. So that in my mind, the elect nations now represent the true Israel who are contrite and repentant when Christ comes. It's a difficult interpretation, I think, when our Lord makes that shift, but it's quite clear. The nations played him false, comes under judgment, and our Lord now goes universal to all of the tribes of the earth. In the text, I think, Matthew 24:30 represents that. To validate that interpretation, let's turn to Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 39. And when the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. A Roman centurion is swept into the faith watching the crucifixion in the majestic dignity of the Son of God upon the cross. What makes this more pronounced is this exact event described 
in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 37. Because in John's Gospel, there's an allusion to Zechariah chapter 12. Again, John chapter 19, in the 37th verse. And again, another scripture says, context being the Roman centurions who are crucifying Christ. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. Again, the context, the Roman centurion, a Gentile who repents and believes and comes to Christ is a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 12. I think a validation the nation is shunted off into judgment. God is turning to the nations. And a Roman centurion is the first fulfillment of that great prophecy. He is the initial fulfillment of Zechariah and a reminder of the importance of repentance and genuine faith. Great expression of the gospel. If you've come into this church for whatever reason, You've never really understood the gospel. The Roman centurion is telling you what it is. Christ upon the cross, rendering an infinite sacrifice for the sins of sinners, satisfying the wrath and the justice of God. The Roman centurion saw that event and understood the theology of the cross, and he comes to faith in a moment in fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's so a summons of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon what Christ did upon the cross. Satisfaction for the sins of sinners. That the one paid the debt for the many. It's the basis of their justification. Again, if you think of the ethical demand of the second coming, it's our reminder, again, that the coming of Christ is the basis for perseverance. In the fires of tribulation, the church all over the world, regardless of the form of tribulation, holds on. Why? Why does it hold on? Because their Savior is coming again. They believe that, and that is their hope. It's the basis for perseverance. It's grounded in Christ and the promise of the second coming. That God will come in power and glory to defeat our enemies and to rescue us. So that rescue and tribulation go together. It's important for the church to understand that statement. It's difficult to go through suffering, whether it's spiritual or physical. In fact, I would suggest to you sometimes in the intensity of the fires of tribulation it is that which catches us and holds us. God's going to rescue me. The ironic shift away from Israel to the Gentiles is our reminder as a church not to emulate the actions of the nation of Israel. Again, they were the professing people of God but they committed apostasy by rejecting Christ. Again, the Olivet Discourse is framed by the reality that he leaves the temple for the last time because the temple said no to him. This is exactly the invocation of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us. What is that? What example? That we should not crave evil things as they also craved. It's a reference to the nation of Israel. Having fled the armies of Pharaoh, having experienced the great deliverance from Pharaoh and the baptism in the Red Sea, we learn that their hearts never really left Egypt. Look at verse 7. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. Verse 8. Let us not act immorally as some of them did. Verse 9. Let us 
not try the Lord as some of them did. Verse 10, nor grumble as some of them did. And now verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So summons to get out the book of the history of Israel in the wilderness and to come away with the great ethical understanding that we should walk humbly before God and take heed lest we fall. The first generation out of Egypt never entered the promised land except for the tiniest of minorities. Again, the ethical demand having studied Israel in the wilderness, is to persevere, take heed, lest we fall. So the second coming is post-tribulational. The second coming is a time of retribution upon the enemies of God that includes oftentimes many professing Christians. second coming also involves an end-time division of mankind and our rescue. Matthew 24, verse 31. Our rescue. I tell you again, tribulation and rescue go together. They can never be separated. God will not suffer his people to be left alone in battle. He will rescue them. The greatest rescue of all times. Matthew 24. Verse 31, he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. They will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Christ will come. He will dispatch his angels to gather his people, separate them from the false. The trumpet reference is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 27 and verse 13. Again, our Lord is using the Old Testament to teach us about the nature of His coming. It will come about also in that day that a great trumpet will be blown, and those who are perishing in the land of Assyria and who were scattered in the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. The context, of course, is the gathering of the exiles back into the land to worship God. They're going to be carried away to Babylon, live under the aegis of foreign pagan idols, pining away to return to Jerusalem. Metaphorically, a trumpet will sound and they will be gathered back into the land to worship God again. The audible event, of course, has a greater fulfillment of the second coming, speaking to the ingathering of the elect. The church is scattered all over the world. A trumpet will sound. The angel will gather all of the elect of God. It's really the event spoken of by the Apostle Paul. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I believe the Apostle Paul is alluding to Matthew 24 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Therefore, if he is... And Matthew 24 is a clear reference to the second coming. I think 1 Thessalonians 4 is as well. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Some people, of course, see this to a secret coming of of Christ for his church. Uh, certainly a secondary issue in my own mind, but nonetheless, it's not very secret with the blast of a trumpet. Notice the ethical application of that in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. In other words, as you go through tribulation, have comfort that God will come for you and rescue you. You will see it, hear it, know it. And it will happen just as is coming. But the event in Matthew 24 is accompanied by angels who will separate the true from the false. The great king will dispatch his, his angels as his agents. 
It's a great reminder to me that we need to understand very clearly that men are divided into those who are Christ and those who are not. There will be one last great separation at the end of the age. The angels will make it happen. They will separate the true from the false. The great discriminator is, of course, perseverance as an essential element of true faith. They will gather together his elect. Great promise. It's the basis of our perseverance, going the distance. But by the way, this is not a new teaching of the Gospel of Matthew. Studied this earlier in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Look at the context. Verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit. Nor can a rotten tree produce good fruit. Meaning that there's two types of fruit. One will be accepted, one rejected. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Those of you who practice lawlessness. And what a terrifying event that must be. It means they're gathered before the Lord. Say, so, well, well we, we did all these miracles. Lord, you have to accept us. We, we prophesied your name. You have to accept us. We belong to you. And he says to them, I never knew you. And in a moment, their delusions are shattered. What a terrifying prospect meant to purify us, to persevere in the faith. But the angels will gather his elect. All who belong to him. I know the doctrine of election is a difficult doctrine. Basically, in my understanding of it, because it's based upon the sovereign free grace of God. Look at the promise of it. <laughs> That's the point of the text. They will gather his elect. All who belong to him. All others will be passed by and sifted for condemnation. But he will gather his elect. Again, to purify us, to persevere in the calling of God. The fact is that when you're His, you're comforted in the midst of your tribulations because you will be gathered by the angels at the end of the age. He is the only difference. Notice, notice His elect. Doesn't read the church or some denomination. Doesn't read some other religion. It says his elect, those who belong to Christ at his coming. If you're not a Christian, you will be sifted. The angels will pass you by and you'll be carried away into judgment. His elect. What a great reminder to trust and to hope in Christ throughout all of the vagaries of life. The angels will scour the universe and ransack the created order. And none of the elect will be forgotten or lost. I remember when I was uh, serving as a soldier, uh, one of the great rescue events uh, during the Vietnam War was rescue at prison at Sante. Probably the name escapes most of you, but uh, it's a prison camp. American Army. Attempted a rescue effort. They landed at the prison camp only to discover that all the American prisoners had been moved. Good try, but it failed. The angels of God will not fail. There is no aborted rescue attempt in the providence of God. Some of you remember a great rescue attempt a couple of presidents ago. Attempt to rescue Iranian hostages. Utterly failed in the desert. The entire event was aborted. 
our rescue will not be aborted. The angels will gather the elect of God. I understand the fires of testing of your faith sometimes will tempt you to just give it up. No. Understand the greatest rescue event of all time will come for you. You are not forgotten. You will be gathered. Hold fast. Go the distance. Most comforting to me is this doctrine of election. Quite frankly, I think it's the only reason we can be comforted. I, I kind of stagger in my faith when so much of the American church rejects the doctrine of sovereign election when it is the entire basis of our comfort as Christians. Why would you throw your comfort away? I can't, I won't. Neither should this church. Because in the fires of the struggles of the Christian faith, all over the world, the elect know that God will come for them in their own time. And they will not be forgotten or lost. When I was in the service, we used to have formal dining in events, and on occasion there would be a special ceremony for prisoners of war who would yet to be rescued. No such ceremony in the church of Jesus Christ. It will happen. The angels will make it so. And the God who so commands them will ensure it by his power and everlasting glory. Again, tribulation and rescue go together. And rescue will always follow, necessarily follow, cannot but follow tribulation. A couple of illustrations from this. Life of the Apostle Paul. 2 Timothy chapter 2 is one such reminder of the importance of, of uh, perseverance. Second Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 12, is the apostle quoting an ancient poem. It is a trustworthy statement. In other words, pay attention, it's going to happen. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. Conversely, if we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. In other words, you cannot play fast and loose with the name of Jesus Christ. Go the distance. Take comfort. If you died with him, you will live with him. If you persevere, you will also reign with him. That's the entire theology of Daniel chapter 7. And really, all of the scripture for that matter. I love the 19th verse. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. What a great reminder. He knows all of his elect and will gather them all at the time of his own choosing. By the way, be very careful. One of the great strategies of Satan, we begin to suffer for whatever reason. Sometimes we suffer because of the faith and we begin to isolate ourselves. We think, well, I'm, I'm alone. No other Christian's ever gone through this event. The Lord knows exactly what you're going through because he went through it in infinite indignity. He knows exactly who you are and where you are and what you're going through. Be comforted. He will rescue you, however it plays out. Fourth chapter. Again, this is the apostle's last letter. He was persecuted. Look at verse 14. A professing Christian persecuted the Apostle Paul. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Sometimes we're 
were shattered by that. <laughs> Christians persecuting Christians. Well, Alexander the coppersmith messed with the apostle Paul and he lost. And Paul will win because God will rescue his own. Played out in the apostle's life in verses 17 and 18. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sometimes the lion catches us, but God will deliver us. I know last Sunday I repaired to Daniel chapter 12. I'd like to do so one more time very quickly in terms of the theology of the text this morning. Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. God will come for you, however he so comes. But in his second coming, he will defeat all of his enemies and gather his elect from the four corners of the universe. All of us should be enamored by this great promise of God. It should be the cause of worship and praise. Human attempts at rescue will sometimes fail. Missions will be aborted. The divine will not fail. There is no abortions when the angels come to gather the elect of God. The second coming it's a time of the sifting of mankind to rescue. It's also an event of great urgency. Verses 32 to 35. Our Lord repairs to the analogy of a fig tree. If you will, he uses a tree to stress the reality of the importance of the urgency of perseverance. The fig tree begins to sprout leaves that indicate summer is near. And so all of the signs that we have been studying indicate that the coming of Christ is imminent. He's right at the door. The immediate reference, I understand it's a very difficult text, is to the apostolic company who see all of the events less the second coming and that is why Jesus tells them it's near. It hasn't happened yet, but it's near. But you're going to see all the other signs. The apostasy, the hatred, the vitriol. Men from your own selves will rise up and attempt to destroy you. Of course, violence of wicked men just attempting to destroy the church. All of it's happened and will happen, save one great event coming of Christ for his people. But it's near. That's the ethical application. It's near. When something's near, what do you do? You prepare for it. You get ready for it. But that in and of itself will form something of the ethical response and the rest of the Olivet Discourse. But it's our reminder that if it's near, then be ready. Be in a perpetual state of readiness. The coming is imminent at the very door. And the certainty of the events described by our Lord acknowledged the certainty of his word. That's a great promise here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. In other words, of this promise of the second coming, our Lord is reminding us of the certainty of the word of God. If the word is certain, and it is, then the coming is certain. And the rescue just as certain. It's importance of uh, the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 48 probably forms something of the theology, perhaps even an illusion uh, by our Lord as he describes the certainty of the Word of God and therefore the certainty of the promise of the second coming. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. Again, you must understand the context. The nation was beginning to doubt their return to the land from Babylon. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. In other words, 
they will return to the land. In other words, the word of God is certain. Everything else, if you will, is uncertain in terms of the human perspective, but the word of God is eternal and certain and sure. And therefore, we can take it to heart. Uh, Luke uh, chapter 16, 17th verse. Same theology. It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. The word of God will not fail. The promise of the coming of God to rescue his people will not fail because it is the word of the Lord. It's a solemn pledge of the necessity of urgency and alertness and an affirmation that as sure as the coming is, so too is the certainty that he will recover us from the difficulties and vagaries of every time of tribulation. Application is quite obvious, is it not? Don't give up. The promise is, is as good as the Lord and his word is. Don't give up. Endure to the end. Well, you and I are alive in this great inter-Advent period. Christ is coming back to defeat the enemies of the church and to rescue his people. Few things in life are certain. Just speak momentarily to our young people. You think that you will go through life and grow old? Get a job, get promoted? Nothing in this life is certain. Few things in life are certain. This is one of them. Christ will come and rescue his people. Let us hold it dear. Never forget it because he will not forget us. And may the certainty of our rescue comfort us, encourage us, strengthen us until that great day.